What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Will Clemente is a finance major at East Carolina University. He's quickly become one of my favorite writers on all things Bitcoin, including deep dives on various on-chain analytics. We're also joined this week by Willie Wu, the OG on-chain analyst. You can subscribe to both Will or Willie Wu's new email by clicking on the links in the description. In this conversation, we discuss the history of on-chain analytics, what happened over the last few months, the current market structure outlook, and we take a couple of questions from Twitter. I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Will and Willie. I did, and I think you'll learn a lot from it. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Gemini. Gemini is a leading regulated cryptocurrency exchange, a wallet, and a custodian that makes it simple and secure to buy Bitcoin, Ether, and over 30 other cryptocurrencies. They offer industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. Gemini is the go-to trusted platform for beginner and sophisticated investors alike. You can open a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash POMP and get $20 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's right. You get free Bitcoin, $20 free of Bitcoin just for listening to this podcast. If you go and sign up at Gemini.com slash POMP, trade $100, and they'll give you $20 for free. I'm no mathematician, but if you go and you buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, they'll give you 20 It's like a 20% return right out of the gate. Don't call me a mathematician. Don't call me a financial advisor, but that's what that says to me. Gemini.com slash POMP, 20 bucks of Bitcoin after you trade $100 within 30 days or more. Next up are my friends over at LMAX Digital, the number one institutional crypto exchange. Why have you never heard of them? Because you're not an institution. But if you work at an institution, you should know about them. LMAX Digital offers clients the deepest pool of crypto liquidity on the planet, underscored by 100% uptime track record through volatility spikes. They keep the exchange up and they keep it liquid. Leveraging LMAX Group's liquidity relationships and ultra-low latency technology, LMAX Digital is the market-leading solution for institutional crypto trading and custodial services. They feature a central limit order book streaming spot, Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash, all paired with the US dollar, Euro, and Yen. LMAX Digital is used by every single institution that I know. They literally are the secret of the institutional world, LMAX Digital. They're secure, they're liquid, and they're trusted. You can go learn more if you go to lmaxdigital.com slash pomp, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp, or go click on the link in the description, lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. That's where all the institutions are, and that's why you don't know about them. lmaxdigital.com slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode with Will and Willie. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Will and Willie here with me. There's a lot of W's in both of your names. Uh, I'm super excited about this. I feel like uh, Willie is the OG of on-chain metrics and Will is uh, fast becoming uh, one of the crucial pieces of information in the market uh, on on-chain metrics as well. Willie, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pump. Absolutely. Let's just start with uh, maybe you can introduce yourself um, and, and give us a little bit of background in terms of why you got interested into on-chain metrics and, and kind of uh, maybe what you look at on a day-to-day basis when you wake up uh, as a signal for what you think is kind of the most important metrics. 
Yeah, okay. I got into Bitcoin in 2013, um, kind of coming from a tech background, you know, startups, always into tech and data, and that's what appealed to me in, in Bitcoin, um, more the tech side of things. And um, as I sort of delved past um, all the tech, um, you know, we had this blockchain, and I started um, looking um, into what was, you know, data in there, trying to draw conclusions from it, and that ended up... Um, becoming a field in its own right. You know, I started in on-chain analysis in 2016, um, kind of put out some of the first um, on-chain indicators like NVT, sort of 2016, early 2017. That's how new this whole field is. And now something like four, five, six um, companies dedicated providing this kind of data to investors now. Um, so uh, when we're looking on chain, it's really a look into the fundamentals. It's the fundamentals of what um, investors are doing with their capital. You can see them um, come in. You can see their movements. You can see the age of coins. You can see, you know, new people coming in to buy or new people selling. And you can draw kind of conclusions. Um, like if you see a whole lot of new people um, selling in, in a, to a, a dip in, in a bull season, you you, you kind of know that those are the like the weak hands being shaken out. You know, if you see a whole lot of old hands selling, all of a sudden, then that's a little bit more serious because they're more experienced. So that kind of gives you an idea of what we're looking at in on-chain. It's looking at these fundamental movements in capital from real people, less um, the technical analysis, which most traders use, which is essentially just tracking um, the price and volume movements on exchanges and trying to draw um, all sort of you know, metrics around that. Um, ultimately, um, the fundamentals prevail over the long term. Um, short term, the technical analysis is more, um, I'd say, um, timely, it can you can time markets in a shorter time frame, but um, I've seen many, many times in the Bitcoin market where the fundamentals say one thing and the technicals say another, and um, it's I've never seen the fundamentals fail actually. So um, you know, when I wake up and I check the markets, I usually check flows going in and out of the exchanges, give me an idea of the buying power or the selling power of um, in real investors rather than just the traders. Um, I also look at, um, you know, one of these metrics that Glassnode do is um, what they call liquid supply, and that's really a qualitative view of the market where the coins are moving between strong holders or weak holders. I use that a lot um, just to give me an idea of, you know, who's buying or selling, and those two combined give me a very good readout. And then there's about, I don't know, 20 other indicators I might look at depending on the time and the structure of the market. Um, Glassnode have about three to 400 charts. Um, so ultimately, usually I, all of them get used um, throughout a macro cycle. It's just different times. Like obviously right now with China, um, banning their miners, you know, looking at the hash rate on the network, the, the speed of the blocks processing, the miners' wallets, that sort of comes into play. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, it's an ECG, I think. It's like a readout of this entire animal called Bitcoin, and um, you can look at it in 200 different dimensions, and on-chain analysis gives you that. Willie, I want to follow up with this thread you put out. Maybe you could just kind of break this down for listeners. Um, you know, this, the one you put out yesterday, you're looking at uh, the, the supply shock ratio, liquid supply ratio, and then also exchange flows. Um, you know, I guess we could just kind of get into real quick. 
what what exactly are those uh, you know metrics showing and, and just kind of getting into this whole uh, you know like re reaccumulation phase that that we've been kind of describing? Yeah. Okay. So I I measure supply shock in um, two ways, a quantitative view and a qualitative view. Um, the quantitative view is really just um, the speculative inventory that's sitting on um, exchanges. You know, so you can draw a pretty easy conclusion that um, the supply sitting on exchanges are the coins that are able to be bought. Admittedly, some of them are long-term holders, particularly on Coinbase where noobs sort of, and particularly retail store long-term their coins. But mostly the coins on exchanges are speculative coins. And um, what you can see is um, as coins um, deplete off that inventory, there's in effect a supply shock. So, um, you know, that's been the, the story of this last 12 months. Um, ever since COVID um, hit the economy, um, we've been in the supply shock um, setup where the inventory on spot exchanges are slowly depleting. And that means that's less and less coins able to be bought. That puts a bullish price pressure on. And in this latest pullback, where we pull back from the 50,000, 60,000 range into the 30s, um, you could also see a massive flow back into um, the exchanges. So a lot of supply being put back onto the market. Um, so that's reverse supply shock. But what we're seeing very recently over this kind of sideways band is actually those coins moving off again. So we're back in this sort of um, supply shock trend upwards Um and um, the other view of it is uh, actually it's the indicator you created, Will. It's, um, it's a ratio of um, like glass nodes um, measure, like I was mentioning, of liquid supply. It's, I call it Rick Astley. You know, you've got two types of people in the market. There's um, the, the speculative guys that um, you can look on their wallets and you can look at their history and see that. A lot of coins move in and out of um, their wallets. They they are in the game to trade um, more than most. And then the other side is the the investor that um, stacks their coins and not a lot leaves from those wallets. And I call those guys the Rick Astley. Um, Rick Astley's of this world. They're not going to really let go of their coins. Um, so when you draw a ratio between the two, is which what you did actually, um, you can create... Um, the similar thing, but it's based on the quality. Like as more coins flow into the strong hands, the Rick Astley's versus the speculative hands, you'll see the same sort of um, supply shock. You know, the speculative hands are, are willing to sell their coins, whereas the Rick Astley's aren't. They're holding and they're not going to let their coins go. Um, so as the strong hands gain more and more of those coins, there becomes a supply shock and the coins held by speculative hands is reducing. So um, I look at that, you know, and um, in both cases, whether it's the inventory on spot exchanges or the qualitative view of um, coins held by the strong hands, uh, they are really moving towards um, long-term holders, um, moving off exchanges, and we're, you know, if you were to look at the qualitative view, um, we're really um, making near highs again. We're back in the zones where Bitcoin was trading $55,000, $60,000, um, and that's continued to climb. So it's a very interesting time in the market right now where the price 
is divergent from on-chain. Um, the price action and technical view of traders are thus selling down. Um, there's a lot of shorts in the market um, and it looks very kind of like a bearish grind. Meanwhile, the on-chain picture shows um, a lot of accumulation, like very ridiculously strong accumulation um, that is not reflected in the um, price action. And we last saw this um, in the months before kind of the October where um, price would have been ranging sideways. It pumped up to like, what was it? Um, 11,000, 12,000 people got really bullish and then it dumped um, down to 10,000. And so the, the trajectory was downwards and sideways and all through that time, um, the supply shock was was um, steeply rising, steeply rising. A lot of coins moving off exchanges, a lot of Rick Astley controlling more and more of the coins. Um, and that eventually um, exploded into a complete um, bullish run um, from November onwards. Um, and if you, if I recall, um, you know, that, the, the narrative back then was we just had this COVID crash back in, you know, the April uh, May, April zone, and um, Bitcoin was very, very correlated to um, stocks. So, um, and and gold was starting to take off, and people were saying Bitcoin's a failed safe haven. It's highly correlated to the stocks. It didn't hold over this um, this sort of bearish crash we had. Um, but the actual on-chain picture was completely different. It was at that point, long-term investors were stacking. They were stacking hard. Um, supply shock started climbing straight up from that point. Um, and actually, it took a number of months before the market kind of priced that in and there was a realization that the coins were running dry. Um, and, you know, it took a while for the kind of speculative um, volumes and in the, in the market to kind of um, get squeezed. You know, I kind of picture... Uh, this, the futures and derivatives exchanges um, having a huge dominance over the short-term price. And at that point, um, the price was swinging wildly um, above what I would have considered, a, you know, there's a particular floor that investors will support and it was trading above that, but that floor started climbing higher and higher. Um, and at, around that October, um, price kind of met um, that, that floor um, estimate what um, long-term investors were supporting and it bounced, you know, and that was when the, the market um, realized that there was supply shock and we ran up to um, 40, then 50, then $60,000. So right now the structure is similar. Um, there's a lot of bearish people in the market. The price action reflects bearishness and underlying it, there's like this invisible... Um, you know, accumulation from um, long-term investors that I haven't seen anything like this since October last year. It, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think the, the key point there is kind of the fact that there's this huge divergence. And like, I've been looking at some of these charts lately and I've been like, am I crazy? Like, cause you know, it's, this has been going on for so long now and price keeps diverging from, from the fundamentals. Um, but it is kind of wild. Like you said, um, looking at that other times, I mean, at least in the last year or two, there, there hasn't been a, uh, a divergence this large since, since, you know, like you mentioned September. So just waiting for that, that information to kind of get priced in. Um, but it, and you know, in the meantime, it's like, this thing is just growing and growing and growing. Like looking at that big uptick, uh, 
you know, in, in that liquid supply ratio this week was, was pretty wild. And then also seeing, um, and I guess you could touch on this if you want, um, it, you know, the uptick in whales where that, that's something I had been watching for a while. Um, it, it was, was the number of new whales, which have been trending down, but you had actually pointed out to me that, yeah, the number of whales were trending down, but their supply that, that they were holding was actually moving up um, since that big capitulation event. So it's almost like, you know, supply was getting concentrated into older whales. But then this week, um, when we had that big uptick, I think it was like 65,000 coins uh, accumulated by by whale uh, entities in, in one day. At the same time, you had a, an uptick in new whales. So I think that was interesting to see maybe, you know, finally getting some some new large buyers where it had seemed like it was kind of, um, for the most part, kind of like older whales buying. Yeah, well, like the whole rundown, um, like a lot of the coins that were moved um, between wallets, um, between entity wallets, different, different participants, um, they're very young coins, you know, they came in, um, you know, like in the three to six month span where they bought in below 30,000, even 10,000. Um, I think they were very much, you know, this was also the time that whales were selling down. And I think that that was reflective of um, this kind of new uh, thing we have in 2021 where you've got a lot of um, hedge funds now in the game um, and high net worth um, individuals. And um, we know these guys came in around the um, start of this year. And um, I mean, it's interesting because usually in a bull run, it's usually the the new guys that come in, they get shaken out, but they're usually the, um, you know, what would you say? Like the new hands, the noobs, the noobs get shaken out and the the strong hands and the, the, the old guys that know exactly what's happening in Bull Run, they snap up those, those dips. Um, whereas this time we've had like, um, you know, hedge funds, which are, you know, supposedly savvy. I mean, to be savvy, um, they're savvy in traditional finance. Um, maybe they're not so uh, savvy in um, Bitcoin. Um, they um, took their profits. They took a lot of their profits off the table. Um, and so you ended up having whales, these huge whales dumping, dumping in a bull run um, onto effectively much smaller guys, um, medium-sized people in retail who are, you know, they're, they're stacking hard, they're buying up these coins. Um, so the dynamics kind of flipped. It's a very weird cycle, this one. Um, and it's interesting to see that blip now. Um, yeah, the, 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 it's more so the, the coins under control. And I kind of wonder if, you know, what's your take on it? I'm, I'm wondering if there's yet unannounced news, you know, maybe, you know, like we know El Salvador is, you know, in for what, 150 million in their trust fund and they've, got about 135 million that they're going to give out to their citizens. Um, that's a fair amount of buying pressure in the sideways band. Um, but I kind of wonder if there's others, you know, there's like eight Latin American countries now very kind of bullish on Bitcoin being a big thing for their economy. Um, at least they're making noises of it. I, I do wonder if we've got some unannounced news that we can see on chain, but um, you know, we don't know what exactly that is right now. Willie, one of the things that's really interesting to me about all of this is um, as we see folks come into the market, I think most people uh, who pay attention to this stuff have wrapped their heads around, okay, strong hands are buying. Um, and people who have been around for a long time kind of understand cycles and look for points uh, to accumulate. But 
one of the things that has changed, uh, let's say in maybe the last 12 months or so, is we now have corporations, uh, financial institutions, uh, and even nation states that are starting to um, actually buy Bitcoin and, and hold it. Do you have any insight or, or any way to kind of think through it from a framework standpoint as to uh, maybe the quality of these long-term holders or, or a difference between, let's say, an individual who's been a long-term holder, been around for a while versus an institution, uh, a nation state, a corporation, et cetera? Um, well, like definitely the quality completely changes. Um, you, you kind of tend to have uh, much less signal coming from these kind of guys because uh, they, they're very measured moves. Like if you look at Michael Saylor's market strategy, they're buying um, kind of in bulk in um, separate rounds. He's actually, you know, announcing it before, I guess, for regulatory reasons. So it kind of gets front run a bit. But once those coins get mopped up, um, that's just a whole bunch of supply locked away. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of signal coming from his wallet, right? It's just those coins are aging. Um, and so it's, you know, like, in the old days of like 2016 and the cycles before that, you know, the on-chain had a lot of the dominance and um, it was just a sea of participants and you could see all the transactions on-chain and um, you kind of get this, um, you know, it's, it's a lot more um, predictive when you've got, you know, a million people individually acting rather than like five. All right. And, and so I think that's, that's a lot of signal being removed. Um, and I, I don't think on chain necessarily is useful for that. I think it's much more useful actually picking up the phone and talking to these guys in the, in the industry, because, the, you know, although these coins are held by um, a lot of um, like, you know, shareholders, I guess, split owners within, you know, a corporation or even a nation state, there's a lot of vested interest in those coins. The, the decision power is very, very centralized. So um, in that regard, it, it starts to look a little bit like a small altcoin, their, their, um, their holdings. It's like these people have very concentrated power to just move um, their coins. And it has a huge impact, you know, even like things like the grayscale um a Bitcoin trust, that's, that's a really, that's, you know, that holds three and a half percent of the coins. Um, and you can see the impact of even the small, um, you know, way, well, let's just say the way it's structured um, with the lockups and, and the design of that, that instrument, um, it has an impact on the market, a significant impact. And so, um yeah, like these entities that are very concentrated, um, obviously they they they, they kind of add a shock to the market if they do anything. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's an on-chain thing we look at. Um, it's it's likely in other data in these conversations. Willie, one thing you'd kind of touched on, I just wanted to, uh, you know, kind of like circle back to, I think a lot of the capital that, you know, people kind of need to keep this in mind, a lot of the capital that, flew in or, or was flown into uh, the market, you know, towards call it, you know, late last year, you know, uh, November, December was through grayscale for, you know, people trying to do the arbitrage trade. And then also, um, you know, the cash and carry trade, the, you know, the difference between the the spot in the future, long spot, short in the future, and just kind of capturing mm -hmm. that, that basis. Um, you know, I think a lot of, and, and I think you pointed this, I don't remember exactly who pointed this out, but part of that, 
down draw in whales kind of coincided with um, the, the spread between the futures and spot dropping off. So I, I suspect a lot of those whale entities that we saw come in, um, you know, kind of at the beginning of the bull run, because I remember that was a big narrative like, uh, oh, you know, there's, there's this huge uptick in whales. You know, it, it was like went vertical after we broke all time highs. Um, you know, I suspect a lot of those whales weren't actually in Bitcoin for the asset itself. And we're just kind of seeing this market neutral trade that they could just, you know, take, but they had to, they had to own the underlying. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how much of that impact was from the market neutral participants, um, to be honest, because like we saw the whales started to sell down. Um, we saw the whales start to sell down um, quite early. I think it was um, around March they started to sell down. Um, yet, like the yields that you were getting in the cash and carry trade was climbing, climbing. It was it was getting very, very lucrative. Um, the yields only dropped off after we kind of got down to the forty and thirty thousand mark, um, and people people were interested in shorting, and the market went into backwardation. Um, the, the you know at that point you it made sense to unwind out of your um position right and because you you're not doing yield by holding your bitcoin and shorting it anymore it's actually costing you money and so we did see um, a little whale um, holdings drop at that point and I think that was responsible for that cashing carry um, I. I kind of do think that this was a speculative whales, you know, like we, we know that Ruffer bought around 10,000 and they sold a bit um, in the, what was it? The, was it in the um, 30s? Something like that. And then they sold the remainder in the 50s. And the Elon Musk um, Yeah. Like um, they, they, no, they sold, no, they sold, that's right. Was, they sold some in the Elon Musk pump, but then they sold the remainder um, and saying that, oh, I think they cited that the kids weren't going to be um, playing speculative games anymore because COVID was um, coming to an end or something like that. Um, and then I know the New Zealand, um, one of the retirement funds in New Zealand, um, KiwiSaver, uh, they they also bought in the 10,000 and they exited um, in the 50 to 60,000 mark. So there, there's a couple of known funds that I, I, I know of, um, well, that's well publicized, and um, so we do know that there were funds behaving in this way. And if that's the tip of the iceberg, there's certainly a lot more whales than that than funds being announced that they've bought Bitcoins. So um, there's probably a lot of this action happening. Um, you know, fund managers are highly connected. Um, they might be copy trading more or less. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we did get a bit of south side and you, you see that reflected in the GBTC inventory um, not climbing anymore. Um, Willie, one of the things that uh, always fascinates me about the on-chain metrics is uh, kind of this idea of like the on-chain metrics can't lie, right? There's, the data is the data. How you interpret it could be different for different people, um, but, but it's this real-time transparent view into uh, what's happening in a part of the market. How do you think about um, the on-chain metrics being um, kind of uh, more reactive or, or more of like a lagging indicator for things? So sentiment changes, then the on-chain metrics change versus the on-chain metrics are really driving maybe sentiment or other types of um, activities in the market. Because it feels like there's a relationship where, um, you know, if you kind of zoom out and, and look historically, you can definitely tell, okay, at some point in the market, uh, we saw a bunch of the metrics change and around the same time sentiment might have changed but but what do you think about the relationship between those two things 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's so many different metrics you can look at, and I find some more predictive than others, and others certainly lagging. Um, and so, um, you know, it's 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 that constant search of finding the leading indicators. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, on-chain's really, it's, you know, there's, there's, there's short, medium and long-term on-chain indicators. Um, and some of the highest value you can get as an investor is the longer-term stuff um, because you want to know when is a good time to enter and when, you know, it's probably highly risked and worth taking some money off the table. Um, and so the macro long-term indicators of on-chain is very, very useful. And whether or not you call that predictive, you might just say, look, Things are getting dicey here because our on-chain models are saying that this is where the fundamentals are and this is where the price is. And when you do the ratio between the two, things are very highly um, speculative in a, you know, almost mania phase. And and that kind of stuff is interesting. It doesn't say the, the price is going to crash. You can go even higher, but it can tell you your risk um, you're carrying is high and it might be worth de-risking a bit. And um, so that's that's kind of the more macro side that's super useful. Um, and then you can kind of get into the shorter time frames like um, demand and supply that's happening over the week to week. And um, that stuff, it's still pretty reliable, but it's, um, you know, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be perfect because it's based on interpretation. It's, it's based on, um, well, these are markets, anything can happen. Like at one point I remember um, saying this thing is tentatively recovering. I think I'm bullish. And then, it, but the key thing was it's tentatively recovering. And then Elon Musk tweets about Tesla not accepting Bitcoin and validating um, this, this FUD on Bitcoin, you know, to the mainstream who aren't very clued on Bitcoin. They're just validating this whole rhetoric that it's destroying the planet with um, fossil fuels. And and that totally um, started this whole bearish run. And there's no way you can predict that, right? On-chain doesn't predict these market moves that um, are outside you know, like that basically means the on, on-chain investors that we're seeing got sideswiped by some random event in the market. Um, doesn't mean it was wrong in saying that, you know, investors are buying and they're bullish. Um, it just means that we didn't pick um, this unpredictable event. Um, and having said that on the short term, when I say short term, maybe in the three weeks out, um, you know, I do a letter and um, there's about 22 forecasts out now and the backtrace is um, high 70s or 80% reliable. Um, so if you're a trader um, and you're trading um, a technical signal, typically you're doing really well. You're in the 55 to 60% accurate in your analysis. So on-chain currently, even the short time frame stuff can be predictive if you're looking at the right stuff. Got it. And before we let you go, maybe talk a little bit just about where we are today from a market structure standpoint, kind of what are you looking for moving forward? So are there specific uh, milestones? Are there specific things happening with the on-chain data that you'll say, you know, hey, this is going to be a big moment. Uh, we don't know when it'll happen, but I'm looking for it. Um, or is it more so you just wait till the on-chain metrics develop and then analyze what, uh, what kind of happens uh, in real time? 
Yeah, right now the big story is like when does this um, accumulation band um, pop? Uh, like, I mean, you know, that's, it sounds almost sunny, funny, you know, if you talk to people on crypto Twitter um, because everyone's so bearish saying we're in a bear market and I'm like, this is a bull market. There's no mistaking this. Like we've got X-ray vision on what the investors are doing and it's bullish whilst price is sliding downwards. And I think the next major event is when the fundamentals um, squeeze the price action and we we break out of this, what I'd call a re-accumulation ban right in the middle of a um, bull market, like a, like a, a bearish shock that um, is now being shrugged off. Um, so that's the, that's the next thing I'm looking for. Um, and then um, typically once, you know, we usually get, get a few pullbacks within a bull run. This is a really weird one, um, a whale-powered um, pullback um but i'm really after that i'm really interested in seeing how the tail end of this bull market develops because um this bull market is um you know it's structured unlike any i've seen before um and the 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 market of you know the whole market is completely um different you know we've got very well developed futures and derivatives and options um and now we've got you know large etf instruments so and we've got a lot of leverage in the system, you know, BlockFi, these kind of loans, um, and a lot of hidden leverage like that. So it's a, getting a more comp, it's become a more complex beast. And I think we've already seen um, the way the price is moving um, in this, this, um, you know, this epoch, this um, halvening epoch, four-year cycle. Um, it's unlike anything. It's not smooth. It's lopsided, volatility all over the place, and. Um, I really, I'm just really interested in seeing how that, stru that structures later on. Um, I'm not predicting, um, I'm not predicting, you know, waiting for some event in the end of the year. I'm more like using on-chain as a map to try and get a grasp of what exactly is happening in the market. And I have no idea what's going to happen in fourth quarter. You know, we've got like a nation state coming on board. What would that look like on-chain? Um, you know, we've got Lightning Network with that nation state um, starting to fire up. And so there'll be a lot of um, activity locking into that and taking it off the chain um, and trying to see if we can get some data on that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of a wait and see and like figuring it out as it comes. Willie, do you know any positive news is hopium? Come on now. Any positive news? I think we just sort of talked about it. Um, I think the positive the, news the, right now. What's that? I was going to say we're the we're the glass node hopium guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly, the glass node hopium guys. I think the positive news is that um, there is so much bearish trolling on Twitter. You know, um, you know, like if we can get more and more people bearish, then um, that'll be certainly the bottom. Um, I want to ask you what what's the uh, top model look like? I know this is you know, kind of a, a reactive model that, um, you know, you can kind of gauge where the trajectory of it is going, right? But um, I'm assuming that that's your opinion on that has changed. I know you had been kind of looking at, you know, two, 300K. I was just curious, um, you know, where that kind of stands in your mind. Oh, yeah. So um, if people uh, like like to cite that I have an opinion, like I make a prediction. All I'm doing is reading off the model. <laughs> and like I, I get the luxury of saying the, the target is a moving target because the model keeps changing because it's basically, you know, a moving average over the, um, the market cap um, is what it's based on. And um, and it's hit every top in the history of Bitcoin, you know, twelve year history. 
I'm not saying it'll do it this time because it's such a weird cycle, but that top model, and there's another model um, which frames the bottom, um, they they give me an idea of where the top may be. Um, and, you know, first quarter of this year, we were ranging up to the three hundred dollars to $400,000 range. Um, right now, um, the top model is $157,000 today. Um, of course, it moves. Um, and so really it's looking, I don't know, if, if, we, we, if we squeeze out of this um, accumulation band like I'm expecting, I would say that we'll start curving upwards and we're in the two hundred fifty to $350,000 range. Sounds a bit ludicrous right now, but that's what the model says. Um, if we hit it, you know, if we hit it, don't know if it will. Would you be looking for, um, well, I guess a few things. So like, obviously we're talking about this reaccumulation when that, when that kind of supply shock takes place, um, do you suspect that, you know, shorts, cause when you look at like funding, funding's been negative for well over a month now. Um, I mean, there's been a couple of days of slight positive, but in general, um, do, you, do you think there's a, a possibility of us kind of getting this, this short squeeze on the way back up? And then second of all, um, you know, we, we've been kind of talking about funds that got in and like, you know, 10 to 20K and then had moved to take token profits, um, you know, kind of at the beginning of the year. Do you think there's a lot of um, there, there's a lot of momentum uh, funds like kind of that, that will come in if we have a breakout and kind of try to ride that momentum wave, right? Like, so maybe we'll see an uptick in whales or whatever it may be that's kind of showing like once we break, I don't know, whatever it is, the, the 200 day moving average, something that kind of gives capital that's sitting on the sidelines um, the confirmation that, okay, yeah, maybe we are waiting for lower prices, but this thing's now broken out to the upside. So now, you know, we feel confident to go ahead and take a position. Do you think you, you get that effect or like, have you gotten that effect in the past once Bitcoin breaks out of some major resistance? Yeah. I, um, you know, I will remember in the 3000, 4000 day and it, it broke out and it was really was a squeeze. I can't remember how the, the derivative um, setup at that point, but looking at the, the squeeze, it looked like um, it was primed to pump upwards if it broke resistance. Um, presently there's, very, very little interest um, compared to, you know, open interest is very low. The number of contracts in the system is low. Uh, so I, I'm not entirely sure um, if we'll get a squeeze, but, you know, historically we, we do squeeze. Um, so squeezing meaning we get a very violent um, move. And this time it'll be a short squeeze because you're shorting. So it'll move to the upside. Um, so I kind of expect it, but right now I, I'm not seeing enough open interest to see anything really very violent. Um, but I do think you're right in that as, um, as this thing starts to pick up momentum and it shakes off all of this crazy bearishness of, you know, not only did we have all this, um, crappy energy fossil fuel narrative thrown at Bitcoin. We then we had on top of that China shutting down all of their um, mining, um, which will take apparently roughly six months for all those miners um, to really move that infrastructure and set it up and redeploy it. Um, so the hash rate of the networks, you know, I think, what is it, 40% down or something ridiculous. So there's a lot of bearishness that's been thrown on Bitcoin. It's still chugging along at, you know, price pulled back um, 50%, but it's still doing well. Um, so if we shake that out and then we've got, you know, you look at the the, the picture we're seeing where we've got, um, 
you know, sovereign wealth funds that haven't really been much of a story, but, um, and I'm quite interested in these non-speculative hodlers at very large scales like sovereign wealth. Um, like El Salvador loading up 150 million for um, their trust. Uh, I think Singapore loaded up on some Bitcoin. But there's a number of um, sovereign wealth funds that I think um, must be looking at um, at um, accumulating. Yet, you know, I don't think we've seen much of that yet. And um, I think that's a story for like the fourth quarter of this year, maybe, um, if it happens. And if it happens, then that's going to really change the cycle um, because we have that kind of buying power on on typically what we'd expect to be near the end of a bull market. Um, we could see a, a really different cycle. I kind of wonder if the cycle, um, I'm calling it different, like um, Dan Held's calling this a super cycle. I'm thinking this might be the last cycle, meaning um, at this point, Bitcoin doesn't see this very strongly imprinted four-year cycle. Um, and we 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 do more of a random walk, and it's highly correlated to macro. Um, and we just random walk all the way up to a million dollars in a few years. It, Willie, do you it, think that's the top? Why a million dollars? Why not uh, ten million or five hundred uh, million plus? Five. You know, I have. What is it? There's there's no top to Bitcoin because Fiat has no <laughs> no bottom, was it? Um, yeah, I think that we're you know the the monetary base of civilization is about to be um, reset, um, more than reset, reinvented. Um, I, I'm I'm looking at this. It's like people are looking at this as reset of the long term debt cycle. You know, um, reinventing money. Money gets reinvented every roughly 100 years, and I'm like going. Well, if you look at when money was invented, that was the agrarian age, you know. So we had a, we shifted from not not trading to actually using money in agriculture and all this technological um, advancements, and that led to civilization. And I think this is the same thing. We're going from this kind of industrial age to a digital age, um, but you know, it's a real first reinvention of money since the agrarian revolution it's a one in ten thousand year event um it's not a 100 year re reset so um yeah it's it's i think it's gonna it's gonna um the top on it is um roughly one to one to world gdp and market cap um which is what 100 trillion mm -hmm. uh, i think i i concur with um plan b plan b is 100 trillion uh, so um, and that might be a quadrillion by the time more money gets printed. It's interesting what you had kind of touched on about the cycles. This is something I've kind of thought about, like over, over time, obviously the, the supply shock has less of an effect, right? Like you, like you've analogized it to a bathtub where you're sitting in a bathtub and you have that push and then that gives it the momentum. And then obviously like, you know, just market behavior, greed kind of kicks in and, and you know, drives the speculative rally up throughout the bull run. But, you know, over time, that push, um, you know, the, the pool of water is getting bigger. So it has not as large of an effect, right, um, on, on that, that kind of supply shock. Um, so over time, I almost like to think of it as like, the, the halvings got the initial kind of inertia going um, for the adoption, right, where it, it gave people a monetary incentive to come in and, and buy this thing because of the, you know, just the pure monetary appreciation of it. But then it gets to a point where the, the halvings aren't necessarily driving people in through that supply shock, but 
the demand kind of just takes over the adoption, the network effects of Bitcoin. Once it has that inertia going, that momentum going, um, then, you know, that's it's kind of just doesn't really matter as much as the, the pure demand from that aspect. And then, like you're saying, you know, as Bitcoin becomes larger, as it becomes a multi-trillion dollar asset, um, it's going to be much more adapt to, um, you know, following kind of macro trends and, and what that landscape is looking like. Yeah, I'm, I'm really um, interested in this uh, last last cycles because it's really, um, I'll put some metrics to it because it's really based on what you're saying, the supply shock, right? Supply shock is what creates these four-year cycles and the sell pressure from the last um, supply shock was 1,800 Bitcoins per day down to 900. So 900 Bitcoins are being mined every day to, and um, that's being sold off, right? That's the sell pressure. Um, now we're in the cycle where there's so much derivative trading um, that you can picture, um, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 Bitcoin potentially being harvested as fees by the exchanges. Um, and that's potential sale pressure if they're selling to pay shareholders and salaries. So um, the the sale pressure from exchanges, like mining, um, it's like a tax on trade and then selling, constant sale pressure. Um, that That's already the same size as, as the current, um, like, mining. You know, and then we're going to drop to 450 Bitcoins per day at the next halvening epoch. At that point, it's the minuscule, the, the least of the, um, the, cell, the cell power. Like to put this in perspective, um, from, you know, Grayscale's 2% of their, their coins under custody for that, um, that fund, that um, pseudo ETF fund. Um, generates a sale power of 36 Bitcoins per day. Um, probably all the ETFs um, combined currently is just over 40 Bitcoins per day compared to miners um, that are doing 900. So um, by the next halvening, ETFs will be 10% of mining power as sale pressure. Um, and so I want to I do this thing where you add all the sale pressure, the exchanges, the ETFs, and all these kind of products that ride on top of Bitcoin that extract fees and Bitcoin value, and then they sell to fiat. Um, I think the mining story is now going to be a thing of the past. Um, it'll be there, but it'll be less important than these new market influences we're seeing. I think also like miners are, are you know, the most bullish on the asset of anybody in the space. Cause you know, if Bitcoin were to go away, like all of their CapEx would just be deemed worthless, right? Like all their machines would just be paperweights at that point. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you look over time, miners actually have a, a pretty strong tendency to hold their coins. Um, and even recently, you know, people have been talking about, um, you know, miners have played this huge role in the selling pressure downward, but at least, you know, in Glassnode's data, you're only seeing, you know, like, a little over 5,000 coins that were sold down, you know, kind of amidst that month in there, um, which in, in that now over the last two weeks, it looks like they've actually started slightly accumulating again. So, um, yeah, I think, I think kind of like the, the whole narrative about miner selling has kind of been overstated. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, there was a dip that dip was, uh, if it was 5,000 as you, you, you quoted, um, that was very shortly after the mining, the miner ban in China, and um, presumably it, it made sense for miners to sell coins because some of them are getting out of the game um, and liquidating for real, and others um, are, are selling out to fund relocation. Um, but after that sell-off, um, 
we're an accumulation um, of coins by the miners and they're not selling. And it's, it's very much what you see with the bottom. Um, the miners, the strong miners are left. The strong miners being the ones that didn't get shut down by China. Um, and so they know it's a bottom because the sale pressure is, um, is, is gone now. Um, so, yeah, it's, and, and interestingly, the, the mining, the mining, um, you know, norm, like it's really weird to be looking at the mining equation in the middle of a bull market. And I mean, typically the sell pressure from miners is very, very small compared to the full force of buying of a, of a fully, um, unleashed um, Bitcoin bull market. And so we're in this kind of tentative band where we're going sideways, where it kind of does matter. But normally, um, you know, back to the first um, conversation, there's like, you know, three, 400 metrics you can look at on chain. Um, and mining right now is 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 being pulled out of the toolkit. Um, whereas normally we don't look at that much during a bull run. Um, very little signal because their sell pressure is so low in a bull run, but right now it's important. If you don't mind, just touch on, um, you know, the Puel multiple, which kind of dipped into a buy zone briefly. Um, and then as well, the the difficulty ribbons, right? Um, it's something I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah, I am not very familiar with the Puel multiple. I remember he, he created it and we was like, we know the equation, but that was like two years ago and I haven't, um, haven't uh, I haven't got it in my head right now. Um, it's the issuance divided by the 365 day moving average of issuance in dollar terms. So um, when you, when you had, right. So like when you had the, the block slowdown, um, yeah. I think that coincided with why you had such a steep drop in it because minor revenue was less because there was less. Oh, okay. That's that okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that basically, um, pure multiple and the difficulty ribbon is very much measuring the same thing then. So what you're looking at is, um, you know, the Bitcoin network generates hash rate from the miners. And then that um, also translates into difficulty. Um, the, the network makes it more difficult for miners to mine, right? And so the, the two things are hand in hand and the two things are matched to keep the, um, the block time every 10 minutes. Therefore, the issuance should be roughly the same. Um, the pool multiple is measuring the localized issuance. And what we saw was the issuance dropped off a cliff because the hash rate dropped off the cliff and the difficulty takes two weeks to adjust. And so um, so essentially the whole, the whole um, network started processing blocks even up to three times slower than normal. Um, and so issuance was one third um, during those times. And um, typically when you see that kind of event happening where issuance is so slow, um, you'll you'll see this drop and it. it really is um, very similar to um, what I'm measuring with the difficulty ribbon, which is also measuring this drop in difficulty, which is a bit laggard. It lags hash rate. You know, the hash rate's dropped and then the difficulty will correct downwards. And as it's, it's correcting downwards, um, eventually this thing bottoms um, and new miners start adding hash rate into the market. And um, what we're really looking at is what I call the miners capitulation. The, um, the weak miners just got liquidated. Um, they could not, typically in a bear season, um, as the price goes lower and lower and lower, eventually the weakest miners who are least efficient on OPEX and electricity costs, they get, they get, um, they get run into a loss and then eventually they, um, 
they exit they exit by selling off their coins closing out on operations to pay for their losses and so those bitcoins get dumped onto the market those that sell pressure drops the price a bit and then that liquidates the next week as miners and eventually you capitulate all the miners down until the last um, biggest baddest miners um, that are very efficient um, are left and so it's a weak miner cull um, and then um, the strong miners know it's the bottom because the weak guys got shaken out and the sour pressure subsided that whole sour cascade of weak miners has now ended and um, the buying can begin um, so they know that they're not going to sell anymore they're going to hold their coins and and so the difficulty ribbon, you'll you'll see the difficulty drop, and we'll see a, a visual compression in that ribbon, and then you'll see it recover. And there's a visual view of that that capitulation event. And the pure multiple is very much similar um, in measuring that. Um, instead, looking at it as a side effect of issuance, because it's effectively um, those block times and and how difficulty and hash rate work together. Willie, I feel like Will and I could talk to you forever. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do that on a uh, on a podcast or on YouTube. Uh, before we let you go, explain to everyone uh, the email that you put together and kind of the analysis and research that you do with the on-chain metrics and where they can go find more if, uh, if they're interested. Yeah, sure. I launched this October last year. It was kind of a good time because it was like the start of this bull run. And the idea is really to give um, investors, particularly investors that are relatively new to the market, um, like a market intelligence newsletter to see um, what's actually happening with investors as we're seeing it on chain so they can make informed decisions. Because um, we see a lot of investors come in, they buy, they get they get freaked out by the volatility. And particularly in a bull market, you get these shakeouts. So I put that letter out. Um, I called it the uh, I call it the Bitcoin forecast. It effectively takes all of these metrics that we get off um Last node, um, I pro reprocess it. I add my commentary and um, predictions based on that, um, and that's available um, on um, Substack currently. So you can just go to my Twitter handle. Um, it's Woonomic at Woonomic, and there's a link there to my Substack, and um, that's available if you want to subscribe. Um, Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We'll make sure that there's a link in the description uh, to send people over there. Will, any last closing words? Yeah. No. Um, hang in there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this thing's going to pop. <laughs> Will Clemente, anything from you? Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for coming on, Willie. Obviously, you know, uh, you know, you're very instrumental in kind of my understanding of all this stuff. It was, it was actually uh, a podcast you did with uh, Peter. I think it was like in, in December or something. It was like right after you broke out all time highs and like just listening to you kind of, you know, explain how everything was moving on chain. It was, it was really fascinating to me. I think, you know, we kind of get insight into um, activity and investor activity that you, you don't get in any other market. So the stuff really is fascinating and I appreciate you, you know, taking the time out to, you know, communicate back and forth with me and then also just come on. I and mean, this is awesome for me. So thanks. Yeah, thanks, Will. It's been really great to see you come in there and sort of take the torch. It's like a new generation on-chain analysts coming in and, and helping build up the space. So that's really great to see. Um, good on you for that. Thanks, Will. Awesome, guys. Thank you guys so much, and we'll do it again in the future. Okay. Catch you later. <laughs>